0: Hello everyone and welcome to the show. Uh, This is Guy Windsor also known as The Sword Guy and I'm here today with Kaya Sadowski, who is co-owner of Valkyrie Martial Arts Assembly in Vancouver, a lovely school that I've taught at and I could not recommend more highly and she is also the author of a book called Fear is the Mind Killer*, which if you've been paying attention to things I've been saying since that book came out, you really ought to have read it by now because it's one of the best books I have ever read on the subject of martial arts. So without further ado, Kaya, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Guy.
0: Well, it's nice to see you. Now, um, let's just start off by locating you. Whereabouts in the world are you?
1: Uh, so I am in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada.
0: Okay, and what's what is it? What's it like there at the moment? Everybody locked down. Uh,
1: we've actually been um, opening up a little bit for the past two weeks. Okay. Um, so uh, BC is really lucky in that we currently have the lowest number of cases in Canada, Excellent. and I think some of the lowest in North America. Wow which means things are just starting to loosen up a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, We are looking at slowly starting to run private lessons at the school again in a couple of weeks and and things are starting to move. So um, there's a lot of cautious optimism in the air right now.
0: Excellent. Glad to hear it. Um, So what made you want to start historical martial arts and how did that happen?
1: Um, I mean, I've always thought swords were super cool. Because they are. How could you? not? <laughs> quite. Um, you know, I've I've, <laughs> I've got memories of of uh, dressing up as a pirate for Halloween and and swashbuckling and all of that stuff, um, but I didn't realize that it was a thing that I could actually just go and do. Um, the only the only sort of um, sport or hobby I'd seen around swords was uh, Olympic fencing, and that just didn't really appeal to me. Uh, and then when I was in college. Um, a good friend of mine took uh, an introductory class at a local school in Vancouver um, and, and, and just came one day and went, Kaya, did you know that you can do this thing? They have a, they have real swords. <laughs> to learn to use them. Uh, and I signed up for a course uh, a little over a decade ago now and just never looked back.
0: Lovely. And what are your main sort of weapons interests?
1: Uh so I primarily work with single-handed swords. Mm-hmm. Um I started out working pretty much exclusively with rapier. Right. These days I do a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that people kind of consider the wibbly boundary between rapier and side sword. Uh I work a lot on Marazzo. i I've been working on godinho's two swords recently, mm-hmm. which I adore. Uh, and then I work a lot with daggers and knives. <laughs> uh, so pretty much anything that you can hold in one hand makes me happy.
0: Okay. Tell us a bit more about Goody Two Swords. What, what, what's uh, the system so, like?
1: Uh, so it feels a lot more... Um, the body mechanics are obviously different, but in terms of intention and application, it feels a lot more like uh, Montante mm-hmm. or, or the other really big two-handed swords. Right. Uh, than it does feel like rapier or side sword or anything like that. Okay. Um, it's about crowd control and area control and taking up space.
0: Oh, sorry, and you and said two-handed to sword.
1: Dominate through continuous movement. Sorry. Right.
0: right sorry, you, you said two-handed sword.
1: I uh, did not. It's two.
0: Oh, two swords. All oh, right. Two
1: single single-handed
0: Because yeah. because what you're describing two sounds swords. sounds that well. That's that's what I thought I heard you say. But what you were describing was like, hang on, that's Montante. Did I miss here? Yeah. Okay. No,
1: and it's like, like tactically, it is Montante.
0: Right. Okay. Uh,
1: it it occupies kind of the same conceptual space. Okay. Uh, but you're doing it with two hands moving independently, and that opens up a lot of interesting options.
0: Well, oh, it would. Um. So.
1: Yeah, it is super fun.
0: Godino, when was he writing?
1: Uh, he is, I'm so bad at dates, but I'm going to say late 16th century.
0: Okay. um, Italian, Spanish, He's Portuguese?
1: Spanish slash Portuguese?
0: Okay. Let's say Iberian. Should we say Iberian? Iberian is a good word. Yeah,
1: let us say Iberian because it lets us be the most accurate.
0: Yes, okay. Um,
1: he writes primarily in Spanish. He does talk okay. about Portuguese as well, uh, and he's sort of considered a precursor to the Destreza tradition.
0: Uh, okay, and I start- but
1: he's doing different stuff,
0: right? Um, am I right to assume that you're working from a translation? Yes. Okay. Uh, so, who 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 else is doing this, and and whose who's work are you are you building on?
1: Uh, so the translation that I am working from do 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 let me pull it up to make sure that I am not mangling anybody's name. Uh, the translation I'm working from is Tim Riveras. Okay yep um, which was a, a collaborative project with Steve Hick, Eric Myers Manuel Valle, and Jamie Girona. Excellent. Um, and uh, in terms of interpretation, we mm-hmm. started working on this stuff at Valkyrie, kind of as a group project, and then I went off on my own a bit, especially during uh, during the pandemic. Right. Uh, when independent study became a lot more kind of viable than than working in. Practice. Well,
0: it's the only thing you can do, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah, and uh, and a number of my private students have sort of independently taken an interest in Godini. Okay. Uh, I started working on him a bit uh, with a pair of students I have down in Minnesota, mm-hmm. who I've been working with for about a year and a half. Uh, one of my local Vancouver students took an interest. Okay. Uh, and then recently I have been working with Christian Bootner, who is out on the east coast of the U.S. Okay. and who's worked a bunch on Godinho's Montante, uh, but had not worked with the Two Swords. Right, um, And so we've been doing a combination of like Teaching and kind of collaborative study and interpretation, Uh, and uh, Dan Halliday in New York has has gotten involved as well.
0: Cool. Uh, How how do you model the crowd (laughs) stuff? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you mustn't confuse New York with New Jersey. They are not the same places. Um, Okay. Uh, Yeah. How do you model the sort of the defense against the crowd? How how do how do you get those sorts of scenarios modeled so that you can sort of test the interpretation?
1: Uh, so, luckily, with a lot of the group stuff, I had an opportunity to play with that in person before the school closed. Sure. Uh, and we would just build straight-up scenarios. Okay. Um, for, for safety reasons, for a number of those, um, we... Because it's a lot of it is, is working against people who are unarmored. You don't want to just put people in a fuck ton of armor that completely limits their ability to move sure. and bang them with steel swords. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so we would uh, we would modify equipment to use like uh, sticks or right. um, boffers or, mm-hmm. or other things that were a little bit more forgiving if they actually hit people. Yep. Um, but. We we ran it as scenarios. We would have one person doing uh, Godinho's rule that was intended for a specific contact.
0: So a, a rule is like a sorry, a rule just just for the um, listeners who may not be familiar with this stuff. A rule, one of Godinho's rules, is like a sequence of movements. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So basically, um, his his two swords section is structured into twelve rules, mm-hmm. uh, each of which covers a specific scenario. Right. So he'll say, for example, all right, so you're in a street. Uh, the street is wide enough that you can throw horizontal cuts without hitting anything, but not so wide that people can move past you as you're doing that. Right. And you're dealing with people who are in front of you.
0: Oh, I love, I love that way of measuring the width of a street, by the way. That's, that is the only way streets should be measured.
1: Right? <laughs> is, is like, well, can I hit the wall? Yes. Um... And, and And he's sort of got three widths or street, which are very wide, not too wide and narrow. right. And you and you work within those or uh, or one of his one of his other rules is, okay, so you've got to get a lady out of a crowd, okay? And she's behind you. Okay, and you've got to walk her through it. okay. And then the next rule that comes immediately afterwards is, whoops, you got surrounded and now she has to sit down.
0: Oh, cool, okay. Um,
1: Yeah, so he's... uh, So
0: you've got to do all your sword swinging without decapitating the lady?
1: Correct, yes. Excellent. Um, So the way that his text is structured actually lends itself really well to scenario work because Mm -hmm. he's kind of pre-built those. He tells you exactly what's going on around you and what situation you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And that makes it very easy to build appropriate situations for pressure testing.
0: Excellent, yes, it would do.
1: Um, And one of the things that's been happening uh, currently is that as I've been working on this with more people and as I've been really challenging myself to be clear and precise in my interpretation, Mm -hmm. uh, some of my ideas around the movements have changed. Uh, And so it's going to be really neat to take kind of the the modifications that I've been making during this time of, of individual study. And once I can interact with groups of people again, doing a second round of pressure testing and seeing if anything's changed there.
0: Yes, of course, because the interpretation doesn't work until it's actually, you know, put into practice.
1: Of course. Yeah. yeah. Right now, right now, there's a lot of stuff that's been shifting in terms of body mechanics and mm-hmm. fluidity and the ability to continue moving, yep. which you can practice. Solo. Yep. Uh But obviously, none of that matters if it doesn't work against other people.
0: Precisely. Interesting. Uh, so, do you have sort of a plan for how you're going to to test the new Interpretations that you've come up with working alone oh, boy. feel free to geek out, okay <laughs> uh, the people listening it's hard are sword people, so so you can geek out as yeah. much as you like, go as deep as you like. Yeah. We will not get bored.
1: Fair I mean um, honestly, what I've been doing currently is grabbing people who are Experienced sword fighters mm-hmm. who know how to move well with a weapon. I'm kind of focusing on folks who have good mechanics and a good sense of flow mm-hmm. and understand kind of how fluidity is supposed to work in a fight. Yep. Um and I'm throwing this material at them.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And 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 sort of not just feeding them my interpretation wholesale, mm-hmm. um, but having them kind of kind of work through it with me and seeing if we arrive at similar conclusions. Okay. Um, and actually, one of the really interesting things that I've been doing recently in my classes, because uh, Valkyrie is still, is still teaching, we are running uh, classes six days a week online. Excellent. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really fortunate in that on Tuesday nights, I have kind of a regular cohort of students that I can uh, throw things at right. um, and sort of see what happens. Uh, and an independent uh, study and independent experimentation is something that's been very (laughs) uh, a very kind of optimal choice for him Um, so one of the things that I've been doing with Godinho specifically that's been a lot of fun uh, is I'll bring him to class and I'll say right here are a couple of basic movement principles within this system this is how he understands footwork This is how he understands uh, cuts and how your sword should travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is how he talks about posture and movement. Uh, And I kind of give people the big picture of um, how Godinho moves and what Godinho should feel like. Uh, And we maybe work through a basic movement pattern so that people can develop an internal sense of that. Mm and then what I'll do is I'll take one of the sequences of, of, of movement in, in one of the rules that I'm working on, especially one of the, the trickier ones or one of the weirder interpretations, um, and I'll start to throw it at students in pieces. Um, so for example, there's one of them, uh, rule four, that involves linking together two very different kinds of cuts. Uh, and the transition between them is weird and tricky. And when I was working on it with Dan and Christian, it took us like a week to make any sense of it. Right. Um, and, and this is with checking it against uh, interpretations that other people have done that are out there. Um, for example, Tong Pui did a, a video series on Godinho's Two Swords that's now a few years old. Okay. Um, but it's a useful kind of check as like, hey, how are other people doing Absolutely. this? Absolutely. Um, but with this rule... Um, you start with throwing cuts on one side of the body and then you transition to sort of a pair of like scissor cuts right down the center and then move to the other side Um, and what I did with the students was I didn't tell them what the pattern was but I had them go, "All right, both of your swords are on one side of your body and they need to move to the other side and one of your cuts is going to be a reverso so a cut coming from your backhand side uh, and one of your cuts is go- or sorry, uh, a revés is the yep. Spanish version I mix up my Spanish and Italian a lot mm-hmm. um, and your other cut is going to be a, a tayo or a, or a forehand cut mm-hmm. um, so you've basically got three options for getting yourself efficiently to the other side you can begin with the revés and follow with the tayo you can begin with the tayo and follow with the revés or you can kind of throw them both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had the students go and play with that and tell me and, and work out on their own which they liked better and why.
0: Okay. Ask.
1: And, okay. And come to their own conclusions about what made the most sense mechanically and tactically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we played with, okay, so what if your swords are now on opposite sides of your body? You've got one on your left and one on your right. Uh, and if you want to swap sides... You can either throw, you can either start with your arms uncrossed and throw two forehands, two tayos, yep. so they end up crossed. Or you can start with them crossed and throw two reverses to uncross them. Right. Again, go play with that. <laughs> um, and then once everybody had developed preferences, we played with transitioning between the two. Um, and, and this was working with a group of, I think I had four or five students that day, mm-hmm. and we worked on it for about an hour, and it was all just go figure these things out and see what makes the most sense for your body, and then we would kind of do show and tell and talk about why we were making the choices we, we were, and some people would talk about tactics and how moving in a certain way uh, would let them maintain coverage in front of them with both swords, rather than creating gaps, Uh, And some people talked about mechanics and how moving a certain way would allow them to change direction more easily uh, Or to use their momentum more effectively to throw cuts more smoothly or to throw faster and sharper cuts Um, And the thing that was really Awesome for me was that everybody had different reasons for why they liked what they liked Yep, but they ultimately came to very similar conclusions about what worked best interesting And so we ended up coming up with this organic consensus uh, that also happened to be a very good fit for um, what's in Godinho and helped kind of refine and strengthen my own interpretation and ended up running on very parallel lines to it.
0: Interesting, Um, yeah, that's a good process. So
1: that's, yeah, so that's kind of one of the ways that I'm testing things Mm -hmm. is okay. If people are using good mechanics and good tactical thinking, are they going to come up with something broadly similar to what I'm doing under the same conditions?
0: Yeah, seems fair. Uh,
1: And if so, that's that is one decent test uh, that does not yet require that I immediately go out and fight 10 other people, because obviously that's a problem.
0: (laughs) Yes, particularly in lockdown. But but that time will that time will come. That time absolutely will come. Oh, yeah. And now I've, I've seen some of your classes and particularly your self-defense oriented classes. And I've been struck by how you manage to have a class with a pretty high level of force and a pretty low level of equipment. And yet the whole thing is pretty safe. Um, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on protective equipment generally, perhaps specifically in the context of Godino's Two Swords Um, However you want to take the question, tell me about equipment, protective equipment.
1: Tell you about equipment. Hmm. Um, So my philosophy on protective equipment in general uh, is that it is a last line of defense. It is an important piece of the puzzle that allows us to prevent serious injury when the other safety guidelines or tools Mm -hmm. that we have in place have failed. Um, so it's super important. It can definitely mean the difference between life and death or, uh, continued function and catastrophic injury, especially when things like eyeballs are concerned. Sure. Um, but it's not the first thing that I want to rely on, um... (sighs) I, I don't want my students ever going into a scenario and, uh, or, a, or a lesson and thinking that their equipment is the only thing that is keeping them safe.
0: Yes, or even wearing equipment makes them safe. Because pe- people get killed in armour. Yeah. You know, in the Middle Ages, people were being killed in full-plate armour. Yeah. Full plate
1: armor. yeah. Equipment, uh, equipment helps if you do an oops. Yeah. <laughs> it's not... It's not perfect, it's not foolproof, but it's an extra layer of protection. Um, but for me, the most important uh, safety tool, and the one that I will always emphasize in my classes, is uh, trust and the relationship between the people involved in the exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that there needs to be an ethic of care in our training. That your job as a training partner is to make sure that you and the person are working with A, learn, and B, walk away safely at the end of whatever it is that you've been doing.
0: I would switch those around. I'll put the learn second. Yeah,
1: uh, that was not necessarily priority. <laughs> okay. Although, you know, although the thing is, actually, no, I'm going to argue with you on that Okay, minute. go ahead. Uh, in the sense that if our only priority is everybody walking away safely, why the hell are we training martial arts?
0: Yeah, okay. So that, that yeah.
1: Um, w- we're here to learn. We accept that there is an inherent level of risk in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that everything we're doing is for the sake of the learning. But my God, do we want to walk away at the end? Okay. So, so no, I'm comfortable with my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fine. But, uh,
0: so what, what do you guys use? Equipment-wise?
1: Gear-wise? Yeah. Are... We, um... It's very situational. For something like Godinus Two Swords, because you've got... uh, Because it's a system that relies a lot on the power generation that comes from continuous movement. Yep. uh, And you get a lot of, like, full-body stuff going into things. So you have swords that could really hit like a brick. Um... If I'm sending people in against that in kind of a pressure testing context, I'm going to make sure, absolutely, that they have rigid throat and back of neck protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to make sure that they've got a full face mask and something protecting the back of their head, mm-hmm. uh, because those are all places you do not want to oops yep. into. Yep. Um, and I would probably be looking at hard protection for, uh, for the joints, for the knees mm-hmm. and the elbows. Uh, and the hands, because those are all things that if you whack them hard with a sword are just going to break. Yep. Um, and if people wanted to throw on more, if they wanted to, for example, make sure that they had rib and, and sternum protection, uh, that would be, that would be a thing that they could absolutely do. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my baseline there. Okay. Um. So, I don't want people in in anything that really affects their ability to move in. With something like, uh, like Two Swords, a really big part of its effectiveness mm-hmm. is the fact that it's scary. Oh, yes. Like, the reason it works, the reason that it takes up an enormous amount of space is that you're effectively staring at this helicopter of doom. Yeah. And there should be an enormous internal hesitation to actually step into that. Yep. Uh, and that means that in order to test it effectively, you need people lightly armored enough that getting hit sucks. Okay. It shouldn't injure them.
0: Mm-hmm. But but, but it
1: should be. You
0: can't just shrug it off. Yeah. Or or
1: ignore no, absolutely. it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, if you know, yeah, if you put somebody in the kind of armor that a lot of folks wear for longsword tournaments, they could probably walk right in. Um, and that's not a realistic representation of the context that. Uh, that this way of fighting was intended for, mm-hmm. so you're not actually going to get an interesting result.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: Um, so you want people, you want people scared of the swords.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: You want people aware of the fact that if they get touched, it's going to be real bad news. Yeah. Um, but you still want them to have the freedom to problem solve within that without immediately risking catastrophic injury.
0: Yep. Okay. Um, now, pretty much everyone I've talked to about equipment has pet peeves uh, feel free to vent
1: all right this is this is my real big one this is my hobby horse when it comes to equipment i've got two actually. okay go for it uh one of them is primarily a safety concern and one of them is primarily a technique and ability to fight concern mm-hmm. Uh, so the safety one is uh, it appalls me how many people think that fencing masks are sufficient for preventing concussion.
0: <laughs> yes, give me both.
1: And who specifically, uh, or who think that concussion is not a substantial enough risk in fencing to be concerned about.
0: Right, yes.
1: Um, and, and I think this is a particular problem in in rapier and in combat with single-headed weapons or weapons that are considered lighter than longswords. Um, Interesting. And
0: uh, okay, you're, you're and the first person, understand. everyone everyone talks about longsword in the context of concussion, but you're the first person who's brought up rapier. Please, right. please please the proceed. Thing is
1: that everybody, everybody talks about longsword because they're like, well, yeah, you're basically swinging a giant crowbar at somebody's head, right. that's bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if we understand the mechanics of concussion, one of the worst things that you can do in order to cause one is pet somebody. Yeah, is hit somebody with a solid thrust high up on their face and drive their drive their head backwards. Right, especially if you add any rotation to that impact. Yep. Um,
0: Which is pretty much the description of a rapier thrust. <laughs> That's that. That is what rapier exactly. does. Yes, exactly.
1: Rapier thrusts to the face. It loves thrusting to the face. Thrusting to the face is great. It's the core of rapier. Um, Not only that, yeah, not only that, but the profiled stance that most systems uh, encourage one to fight in Mm -hmm. means that when you do get hit in the face, there's almost certainly going to be rotation happening as
0: well.
1: Because you're not square onto your opponent. Your head is already turned, and when it gets hit, it's going to turn more. Yep. So there is a massive, massive risk of concussion in rapier.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we don't talk about it because we're using a light, fun, fluffy weapon.
0: <laughs> no one who's ever picked up my working rapier has called it fluffy. <laughs> it's just like, you know, or, or even, or even if, if you handle like a, a historical rapier, like my, I'm talking about my sharp rapier at the moment. It's, yeah. it's a rigid iron bar. I mean, it's, it's got no flexing at all. Tor- I mean, it's, it's, it's springy enough that if you hit really, really hard, it's not going to shatter. It's going to bend a little bit. But it is not a flexible weapon. And even when you go to a fencing weapon like my, my, my training sword, it's, I have a very light and beautiful um, training rapier. But there's a kilo of mass just in the sword. And if I do it right, I'm putting maybe 50 mm-hmm. kilos of mine behind it too. And that it takes time for that steel to bend.
1: Exactly. Um, I've, been, I've been concussed by a rapier in a tournament. I bet. It was, it was a minor concussion, um, but it definitely happened. I, I know the local SCA has a long history of people getting concussed mm-hmm. so badly they stopped fighting permanently. Sure. Because of the brain damage they suffered. Right. Um. And it's just not something that comes up enough, I think, in the Hema community. Agreed. Um. And when it does get talked about, people are like, "Well, you should put a rugby scrum cap under your fencing mask, and that will stop it." That's
0: risk. totally going to help. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Like it, that, that's why, you know, boxing gloves boxing makes a
1: complete...
0: l- lack of understanding of the mechanics. Because boxing gloves prevented all the concussions, right? Exactly. Totally prevented them. That's why no boxers ever have concussions ever, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how would you solve it? Do you have a, oh. you know, if, if money was no object and you had all the scientists in the world working on it, what, what would you want to see them come up with?
1: This is a real hard one for me, mm-hmm. um, This is, you know, thinking about this as a technological problem because we know that one of the, the best ways of preventing that particular kind of pezzing effect is to basically stabilize the neck. Sure. Is to make it so that the head can't go back. Um, I don't know how you do that and still allow for the kind of movement that is integral to rapier fighting.
0: Yeah. I mean, some sort of helmet that is sort of anchored to the shoulders might do it, but you still, but then you would have difficulty moving.
1: Exactly, and that's, my, and that's the thing, is, is we end up sacrificing...
0: Um... How about this? You know, you know uh, like a diving suit? If you had a, like a Perspex ball so you could see all around and it was anchored on your shoulders right. like a diving helmet, so you could turn your head this way and that inside it, but the rapier would hit this ball. That might do it,
1: right? And would not maybe, yeah, um, or or honestly, um, heading in the other direction and looking at swords and seeing if there are ways that we can we can make them flex more and sooner on impact. <sighs> Um, but
0: then you have the wobble but problem. But then
1: we kind of run into doing rapier with a fencing foil, and we have the wobble problem. Yeah. Um, this is the thing, is I, I honestly don't think there is an ideal technological solution. Um, I think we're stuck with... with human solutions on the one hand that involve things like... Managing force mm-hmm. and managing distance and fighting in ways that mean that the amount of times you get hit with enough force to potentially concuss somebody is minimized. Right. Um, and, and also just acknowledging that this is a big danger of what we do and that like in boxing, uh, when, you, when you take up this art and when you fight with intensity, that is a risk that you are taking and have people come into it with informed consent. Yeah. Because I think a really big thing that happens is that people come into this without understanding the risks.
0: Yes, very Uh, true.
1: And it gets sold to them as a fun and safe way to get in shape. Uh, And I don't think that's honest.
0: Yeah, bad point.
1: Uh, And I think at a certain point we have to recognize that like, yeah, no, this is something that's going to hurt you and is probably going to fuck you up a little bit. Is that a trade-off you're willing to make? Mm -hmm. And if not... Maybe don't spar at full speed.
0: Yeah, or or,
1: definitely don't get involved in tournaments. And do
0: it very occasionally. Or do it very occasionally. Yeah.
1: Or do it uh train for it uh the way that the way that boxers or the MMA fighters do where training at full intensity is less than ten percent of what you do in your practice.
0: Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, less it's, th- the, it's less than 1% of what I do in my practice because, you know, I'm 46 and I've been doing this for like 20 odd years and, yeah, I've only got one head.
1: Exactly. I've, um, because of my long and storied history in many extreme sports mm-hmm. and also an extremely clumsy childhood, I have had five or six concussions in my life.
0: That's more than enough.
1: I should not have more. No. Uh, I don't compete anymore. hmm Uh, even though I'm young and fit enough to still do so because that risk is is one that's unacceptable to me. Uh, And when I spar, I spar with people I trust to do so with control and with my health at the forefront of their minds. And I don't play at full intensity and full speed uh, very often at all.
0: Yep. Fair. Um, So that that was one... um, uh, equipment trigger. You said you had two. What's the other?
1: Oh, God. Everybody's gloves are too bulky. As ah! a result, they don't know how to hold their swords. <laughs>
0: There's a reason we're friends, Kaya. <laughs> we're having ex- Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> the, oh, yes. Actually, um,
1: I have a particular pet peeve uh-huh. about. Because, like, long swords, broken fingers, whatever. You guys figure that shit out. I'm not a long sword person. Right. But the number of people who use. Rapiers and rapier-like swords, some of which have a bloody cup hilt, and will still wear these massive, bulky, padded gloves underneath. I know. That mean that the only thing they can really do is hold their sword in a bloody fist. Yep. uh, And it completely destroys their ability to use the weapon as it's intended. Yep. Uh, and actually creates more safety problems than it solves.
0: Well, there you go with the you know if...
1: because there's no softness in their movement, there's no ability to control their impact. Right. Uh, it
0: feeds into the concussion problem. problem. The handling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So so you end up with like yeah maybe your fingers are a little bit better protected, but honestly that's a thing that your guard should be bloody doing anyway. Yeah. Uh, and the side effect is that you're hitting people way harder than they should ever be hit. Yeah. And your fighting's ugly. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going to throw in that aesthetic complaint because it matters.
0: Yes, certainly. Like,
1: who the hell is doing Marazzo because it's smashy and efficient rather than because it looks fucking sexy?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you said it. I did. Okay.
1: I did and I stand by it.
0: No, no, I, I... and
1: Most of what I practice is pretty as hell and it should be.
0: I, I could not agree more.
1: Um, and that's an integral part of authenticity and fidelity to the historical sources yeah. that we are throwing out the window.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, when I'm fencing rapier, if, I have, if I'm intending to use my left hand to parry, I'll have a steel gauntlet on my left hand, but I'll just have a, I only ever use right. just a fencing glove on my right. And, you know, I've, yeah. I've, I once got wrapped on a fingernail in a painful manner when fencing rapier I think once but you know
1: yeah I've been yeah I've been fencing in leather unpadded motorcycle gloves for 10 years right the only hand injury that I have ever sustained uh was the fairly exciting loss of a fingernail Mm -hmm. on my left thumb which happened during a machete lesson
0: Right. <laughs> okay.
1: And, like, machetes don't have a guard. Yeah. You don't get hit in the hands.
0: Yeah, and you're a lefty, right?
1: Uh, and I'm a lefty, yeah. so it's my dominant hand. Yeah. Um, I have... I have never once had anything happen to my hand, my sword hand, while fencing, that has made me think, gosh, I need heavier gloves.
0: Do you know, I, Not once. I, I, I've had a finger broken twice and once was because I'd been doing sabre with a closed hilt you know kind of a complex hilt um, covering the hand and I was sparring this is like 25 years ago we were children Um, with a single handed sword that had an open guard so nothing protecting the fingers and I tried to do a kind of classical sabre fencing parry lifting the sword above my head and I parried with my knuckles and something cracked and that was just me being stupid Uh, (laughs) basically thinking the garb was there when it wasn't. And the other time, um, I got a finger broken on my left hand because I was fencing with a longsword and I'd just bought a brand new pair of steel gauntlets and I was fencing my friend and I parried and I parried his sword with my finger and my steel gauntlets were in my fencing bag two metres away. Not on my fingers. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so, you know, it, it, it does happen. So, the gloves only work if you wear them. Let this be a lesson.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: <laughs> there are no talismanic protections. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: um. Okay, so, so your, your pet peeves on protection are um, concussion, particularly in rapier, and inadequate hand protection, or, or rather excessive hand protection in some cases, um, and lack of sensitivity and flexibility. Correct, yeah. yes. Okay. That's, that's, yeah. We, we're basically the same person in, in this discussion, so I think we should probably move on, because otherwise it's just <laughs> going to be looking like, you know, it's going to be bouncing back and forth between mirrors. So we need to, fi- we need to find something else that you disagree with me on, Kaya. Um, oh, good. Uh, okay. How about this one? I, this is not going to generate any disagreement, I don't think, but um, what has been your proudest moment in historical martial arts? My proudest
1: moment? Yeah. Oh. um I've had a couple in the past year that are all they're all kind of mirrors of each other. They're all little instances of the same thing. Okay. So I'm going to kind of lump them together. Okay. Um it's when somebody has uh, reached out to me, mm-hmm. um, a colleague, uh, somebody else who who teaches martial arts, uh, uh, HEMA specifically, um, and has told me that they read my book mm-hmm. and they implemented some of the culture changes that it suggests mm-hmm. and their school got better.
0: I can imagine.
1: <laughs> and... And specifically, um, the one that's gotten me, I think the one that got me the most that, that absolutely brought me to tears, um, was a colleague in the US, uh, who's teaching down in Texas, um, who told me that every time he implemented one of the things that I suggested in my book his school became more like what he'd always wanted and didn't know he needed. Fabulous. That it was helping him teach and train the way that made the most sense for him and the way that brought him joy and fulfillment. Uh, And that's more than I could have ever hoped for, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I've been telling everybody, I wish you wrote the bloody thing 20 years ago, because then, you know, my own school would have turned out closer to what I had in mind. (laughs) Um,
1: I still, yeah, it still just makes my brain shut down when I hear things like that. It matters so, so much. And I didn't let myself dare to hope that it would have this impact.
0: Well, you're not supposed to ha- write a book like that your first time out, Kaya. You're supposed to build up to it. And after about 15 books, you produce something like that.
1: <laughs> uh, do you know how much pressure that puts on writing a second book?
0: None. Because the thing is, it, it doesn't matter what you do. You can't you, you can't expect to top it. So you're free to, you know, do whatever you want.
1: Uh that's a good point and that's the conclusion that I've ultimately come to is that I don't have to worry about everything I do being revolutionary because that's an unreasonable expectation to have and now I can go write weird niche stuff that nobody else cares about
0: (laughs) precisely so what are you working on at the moment
1: Uh, I am working on uh, a historical uh, an actual like historical interpretation book wow okay the way that I do things yeah uh I am writing specifically on that weird last bit of Mm Moronzo where he talks about self-defense against the dagger.
0: Okay, yeah, I am familiar with the book. Uh,
1: Because it's, yeah, it is a funny little self-contained section of the text that behaves rather differently from the rest of it. Yep. Um, And it's also a really interesting case study in how you build an effective and very simple self-defense approach. Okay. Um, that you can boil down to a very small number of principles, and when you look at the 22 individual plays that he's actually got in that section, mm-hmm. there's sort of just three things applied in different contexts.
0: Okay. What are those three things?
1: Uh, three basic kinds of movement. You drive right through somebody's center of gravity and you knock them over. Right. You... Make contact with them and you pivot them or yourself. So you you turn their force against them, mm-hmm. kind of Aikido style. Yep. Uh, or you isolate a joint and you break or lock it for a disarm. Okay. And That's a
0: pretty complete martial arts system right there.
1: It is. Uh, and and my contention with this and, and the thing that I want to use the book to show is that if you understand the decision-making model that's at play in a system and you understand the basic mechanical principles that it's using, which in, in, in this case are those three techniques, yep. you can reconstruct all of its individual techniques on the fly. And you can do so without having to memorize them. You can do so using them as a means of exploring and refining your approach mm-hmm. rather than as a set of things that you need to remember in order to do it right. Um, Hmm. So it's going to be an exploration of training practices and pedagogy via this one specific interpretation of a very small little system.
0: It sounds fascinating. Uh, Do you have any timeline for when the book might be out?
1: Uh, So originally my intention was to have it done by the end of this year. Uh Um, I would still like that to be the case, but I don't know... I don't know if that's going to happen. I was stalled on it for a good like seven months where I just didn't write anything at all.
0: Oh, no, 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 uh, no. Because I got
1: too-
0: Kaya, you weren't stalled. Excuse me. I just have to correct on this one. You were letting it just state in your brain, coming to a state of readiness to be put down.
1: You're right. Oh, it's so good talking yeah. to a fellow writer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Never stalled. It was, Only ever thinking. Uh,
1: yeah. It was, it was proofing like sourdough
0: right exactly
1: um, uh, anyway I've started writing again good uh, and I know what I want now and I have a clear outline and it's fun and it's exciting um, I think it is reasonable to say that it will be out in the first half of 2021
0: okay yeah
1: for sure
0: I have a suggestion one writer to another finish mm-hmm. finish the book get it through the second draft and then think about when you're going to publish it that's what i do
1: yeah that's a good call and it's
0: because because that you know then i can say okay you know you're definitely going to have the book beginning in may i mean i could have sent people the book in february and it would have been okay it just had a couple of editorial passes to go through and be sent into layout and that was done my last book right but right. but you know i wasn't even discussing when it might be out until it was done because I had no idea I might I might have needed to rest it for another six months before it was you know be- before it had finished proving like right. like Saturday. Yeah, so.
1: I think I like to set myself vague deadlines sure. uh, as a way of keeping myself accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, yeah, first mm. half of twenty twenty one. Okay, I should be on track for that. Is is useful for me? Yeah. Okay. Um I, I need to be more careful about what I publicly commit to. <laughs> I definitely, I I have learned that over the past year.
0: Okay, yeah. So you can public, publicly commit to trying to probably have it ready by? Correct. Fine, yes. that, that's fair. Well, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading it whenever it comes out, um, whether that's Thank next year you. or, or at whenever. Um, okay, so... What is the best idea you've never acted on? Oh,
1: God. This is honestly a really hard question.
0: Well, I mean, three years ago, we um, could have said writing a book. But then you went and did it. Yeah, so. but I don't have that
1: one anymore. <laughs> um, my honest-to-God problem as, as, a, as a martial artist and as any kind of a creative person is that I am much more a person of action than of ideas. Okay. So if I I am slow to come up with ideas, they take a lot of time and they are few and far between. So when I get one, I usually have to act on it immediately. Ah, okay,
0: interesting. Um, like what?
1: And so I don't know... Uh, like the book. Okay. Like... Uh, like... Like... Um, starting to do work on uh on scenario work and use of force Mm -hmm. and stress and all of that and bringing it into the HEMA community the second I decided anything like that was a good idea I just started doing it right and I often start doing things before I'm even sure something's (laughs) a good idea yeah uh, I'm, I'm, this is part of why I like working in groups and in collaborative communities, mm-hmm. is that I often surround myself with people who have better ideas than I do and become the person who goes out and does them.
0: Right. Well, that's, that's the thing. Uh, with
1: credit, of course. Of
0: course. There is, there is so much, um, there are so many ideas out there. It's the execution that is everything.
1: Yeah, so I... I don't know that I have ideas sitting around that I haven't used because I don't know that I have very many ideas.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's a really good balance to have, actually. Okay. (laughs)
1: So so my answer is, I don't think there is one. Give me ideas, please.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well, you heard it here, people. Uh, So listeners, if you have ideas for things you think Kaya should be doing, she has just invited you to send them in. Okay. Um, My last question. Somebody gives you a million dollars. Let's say pounds, right, which is like 2,000 Canadian. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, nice. so, like two. Sorry, 2 million Canadian two dollars. 2
1: million.
0: To spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend that money?
1: I would seek out... Uh, Clubs or or organizations, um, around the world, try to you know Mm -hmm. find as many like one in as many cities and hubs as I as I can afford. I would find clubs that are starting to do really good, really interesting work that are run by people who have great ideas but don't necessarily have a voice or resources. Mm -hmm. And I would make sure that they have the space and the tools to actually grow. Okay, because my my experience um, with Valkyrie and what we've done in in our local community is that our ability to to learn and to train and to make change absolutely expanded exponentially once we got a space.
0: Oh God yes, oh yeah.
1: Once we got the stability to just train from a place. And to grow a community in a place. Right. Um, And there are so many people that are doing amazing work in HEMA Mm -hmm. that nobody ever hears from. Sure. And that nobody ever gets to see the fruits of Mm -hmm. because it's like them and two other people training in a park. Right. And... And they don't have the continuity that a space allows. And they don't have the platform that a space gives them. Um, and I want to find those people and I want to give them a home. And go, here, you have, you have somewhere to train rent-free for the next year or two. Build something with it.
0: Wow. That's a very good use of the money. I mean...
1: And I think that that would co- and that would create way more positive change than funneling money in- money into any one exist any any one big new project that I come up with.
0: Huh, that that's a really interesting use of the money. I mean, when I started my school in two thousand and one, it opened on March the seventeenth, and on the first of June, we moved into a permanent training space, which cost me all of everyone's training subscriptions each month to start with. Right? It was just, it was just, it was from a business perspective, it was an entirely stupid decision. But from a martial arts perspective, it was exactly the right thing to do. And it it was absolutely transformative. The difference between showing up with a bag full of gear at some school sports hall or some park or whatever, and showing up and all your gear is already on the walls. And everybody knows where to come. And you know you don't you're not shuffled out of it at the end of your two hour slot um, or or standing outside waiting to be allowed in while the judo guys finish and put away their mats you know it's just yeah it is absolutely a completely different way of being when you have your own space so yeah I, th- I think that's an excellent use of money is, uh, and this is the thing
1: mm-hmm. is, is like I agree with you completely that, like, business-wise, running a martial arts space is dumb. Yeah. It's... <laughs> it is like, oh, my God, nobody go into this business to get rich or to even have baseline economic stability. Um, but it is absolutely vital from a community and from a martial arts perspective. I think right. we really underestimate how much community growth and how much knowledge sharing and how much training happens... Not in class, but in all of the times outside. Absolutely. When people just drop in to fuck around. Right. When people start taking private lessons because there's something they're interested in. When they're hanging out after class for an hour, you know, shooting the shit. Yep. That's when, that's when... The
0: magic really happens.
1: Powerful, valuable, revolutionary things happen. Yep. And you need a space to make that.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, from a certain perspective, the purpose of the classes is simply to get people into the space to allow that to happen.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's like it's like like conferences, business conferences. You know, no one actually cares about the speakers. Yeah. No one actually cares about the you know the formal curriculum. You go there for that chance conversation over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or something, which completely changes what you've been doing.
1: Yes. The, um, you know, I, I I used to be an academic mm-hmm. and I still have a lot of a lot of friends in that field and every single one of us i think would say that the reason that we go to conferences is for the conversations that happen at midnight on saturday yep. after three glasses of wine yep
0: yeah that is
1: that is where the magic happens and that is that is what i want people to have in Hema. and there are so few of us that do there are so few of us that have a stable space mm-hmm. And quite frankly, most of the ones that do are, are the people that need that resource the least. They're folks who have a good amount of stability, that already have a community, um, and, and maybe don't necessarily have that many new and exciting things to say. Okay. Um, you know, it's by the time you get a space, by the time you get stability, you've been in the game for long enough that you're adding value to the community, but you're not a new voice anymore.
0: Is the newness of the and voice particularly important? I think you know, I, I, sp- I speak of someone who's been doing this um, since the early '90s, right? So you know, I'm, I'm about as old as it gets. So I don't want to be completely obsolete, Guy. Come on.
1: I don't, uh, Guy. I adore you, and you're not obsolete. But the first generation of the first and second generation that I've seen of HEMA instructors mm-hmm. uh, and of people that have really managed to, to grow and build something are straight middle class white guys. Yeah. And there is a narrowness of perspective that comes with that. Uh, and even if you are the smartest and most engaged and most thoughtful and wonderful straight middle aged white guy in the world there are perspectives that you lack and that are sorely needed in our community. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and and the people that we need to hear from, the people that are going to make really valuable change, that are going to make our, our, our community richer and smarter and better, and are already doing mm-hmm. so, even though they lack enorm- uh, an enormous amount of the resources, are the people that are probably never going to have a permanent space because they're not going to be able to afford it. Right because they don't have the same stability and the same advantages that a lot of the rest of us started out with sure um you know valkyrie valkyrie is has been surviving by the skin of its teeth since we opened we're a really marginal space um and we've still had a lot of advantages and a lot of external support come our way and we, you know, we're run by women and we're run by queer people uh, and that, that has made things harder for us, but we still don't face, you know, the structural, we still don't face racism, we still don't face a lot of other structural difficulties that stop other voices from coming forward.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we're just barely scraping by. Sure. Um, so I know, I know how many voices were missing because of those structural inequalities Um, and that's that's why my my billion dollar plan would be throw money at the people who need it most okay and who need to be louder and who need to uh, need to be able to contribute to our community and I'm not saying that you know uh, you know a school run by uh, a queer woman of color in, in a marginalized neighborhood in New York necessarily has to be doing social justice work but it's going to bring a perspective to swordplay and to HEMA that is fundamentally different from what the loudest voices are now. And we cannot help but be enriched by that.
0: That is an ex... Ec- so fucking yeah. give her a space. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's an excellent point to close on. So, uh, because really, you know, what what come on say after that? Um, Thank you very much, Kaya. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I wish you all the best with the new book. And thank you again for writing the old book. um, And I hope to talk to you again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Guy. It's been wonderful.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kaya Sadowski. You can find Kaya online at patreon.com forward slash Kaya Swords. That's K-A-J-A-S-W-O-R-D-S. And remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for episode show notes and to download your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. And tune in next week when I'll be interviewing Tan Smith. To not miss that episode, you best subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast from. See you next week.